0: Good morning. Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Psalm chapter 51. We are continuing our series in uh, in the Psalms, Psalms of Summer, and just kind of jumping around, but uh, good stuff, and uh, we'll, we will be in Psalm 51 uh, the uh, the next two weeks. A couple of announcements for you. One slight change. We put it out on social media, but wanted to let you know. Um, we had originally said family meeting was going to start at 5. It's going to start at 5.30, okay? 5.30. So, family meeting tonight. Been looking forward um, to tonight. A couple things about that. Uh, We will meet in here at 5.30. We will go through uh, just normal as we've uh, been trying to to meet uh, about once every three months uh, just to take care of church business. Uh, Next point we'll present tonight um, as well as uh, we'll have several opportunities for you. Um, to, uh, to think about possibly serving um, in our church. So if you're a member of Crosspoint, please be here, okay? 5.30 tonight. Um, we'll, we will eat after, um, and then we've got water slides. We'll hang out for a while, and then as it gets darker, we'll shoot some fireworks off, okay? If you're not a member of Crosspoint, um, you are more than welcome to come tonight and eat with us, um, we'll probably finish up in here between 6.15 and 6.30, and uh, your kids can enjoy the water slides and the fellowship and all of that. So uh, we just want to let you know that, and uh, so members 5.30 tonight, please be here um, as just part of, uh, we, we, are, we commit ourselves to God's people, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us as a church um, to gather um, tonight. Uh, this coming uh, Thursday, right, Adam? This coming Thursday, that's right. Opportunity to paint with uh, the greatest. There he is right there, just kidding. Um, Anyway, it's a fundraising event as our Next Point team is having lots of uh, fundraisers coming up, and uh, we'll talk more about that tonight. An opportunity to paint with Adam. Um, We do need, if, if they haven't been filled up yet, we do need like five volunteers to help with that night. You can hit up Liza Reed. Um, for that. Speaking of fundraisers, we also many of you last week ordered a potato from Smash and Loaded. That'll be available for you. Pick it up in the Ed Building parking lots on the other side um, as you leave. Right? Uh, students were in New Orleans last couple days and a good time. Paul and Sarah, right? Great time. Ryan went uh, as well. They've got some shirts on with Serve with the New Orleans Mission. You guys stayed at Gentilly Baptist and Paul this morning. You told me you got to meet Dr. Ken Taylor. Dr. Dennis Cole, they were my professors, uh, two of my professors at at New Orleans when I was working on my master's. Um, Paul, just in case you and Daniel go back to seminary, which I hope that'll happen in the future, don't ever do this. This is just off the cuff, but I just thought it was a little funny. I took Dr. Cole's, um, it was like a cultural class, and we had a reading part of the syllabus that was five points of the final grade. On our final, he had a blank up top that said, percentage of reading completed, and there was a blank. I put N.A. That was my official answer, and I got five points counted off my final grade, okay? So just a tip, never put N.A. on a final, okay? Just just never do that. It never works out um, for you, but glad they had a great time. Hey, guys, this month we were able to send a, a team to the Dominican Republic and able to send it a team to, to New Orleans. Amen? Good stuff. Psalm 51 um, is where we will be. We'll be here also next week in the course of the message today. We will go to Psalm, uh, We will also go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, so just get, get ready for that. Uh, I, it, it, it's a sobering topic, but it's a necessary topic. And this morning we're going to talk about the seriousness of sin from Psalm 51. Sin is not a pleasant topic to talk about. What that means is we should talk about it. If what Jesus died to save us from and what Jesus died and before he died to become for us, we must talk about this. We've said it before, a sick world needs a healthy church. A sinful world needs a holy church. Sin is what keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven. Sin is what disrupts our fellowship with God. Sin is what Causes us to not be used by God. Sin is why God became man. Sin is why Jesus lived a perfect life. Sin is why Jesus went to a cross. And praise God, conquering sin is why Jesus rose again. And in the Old Testament, you find David a situation where he is responding to personal sin. Now, the last several weeks, as I've prayed for you and thought about um, what to share, sin kept coming to my mind, which in some ways, any person that would endeavor to speak specifically about sin would have to acknowledge the fact that they themselves are a sinner. So this morning, I want you to know that I am sharing about sin to me first, but to you. And let me just say this, because it needs to be said in a culture where our feelings trumped our facts. We need to be taught about sin so that we can hate it. We need to be taught about sin so that we can treasure the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We need to be taught about sin so that when the moment of temptation comes, we will consider Christ to be our treasure and sin to be our enemy. And Psalm 51 is David dealing with that. So this morning I want us to look at the nature of sin, how David got to this place, and how sin just has these crazy destructive effects. And then next week we're going to look at his response, the appropriate response to sin. How we're called to confess our sin and forsake our sin and repent of our sin. And we'll find ourselves the rest of our Christian life doing that on repeat over and over and over again as we learn that sin, while pleasurable in the moment, literally has hell to pay, but Christ Jesus bore our hell for us so that whenever sin comes our way, we may choose him to be far more precious to us than Sin. Let's read the text, Psalm 51. Notice the description before verse 1. To the choir master, which I think is interesting as we approach this, David, and we'll see it more next week, David made the worst time of his life a song for Israel. Well, that's wild, isn't it? That's what we sang about two, two songs ago. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when? When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Let's read the first five verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did my mother conceive me. This is God's Word. We're going to learn in a few moments the historical context for Psalm 51 when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. But David is speaking out of the deep darkness of his heart. And what he has experienced is first what we'll see is the sickening nature of sin. David is crying out for God to forgive him, cleanse him, blot out his transgressions, to reconcile him, all these words that would basically mean that sin is to be dealt with because there is, it is between you and God. Now, I do think it's interesting, and we must note this, that Psalm 51 is the cry of someone who is righteous, who belongs to God, who has been made right. Now, this is Old Testament, but people in the Old Testament were declared righteous the same way that we are. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. They didn't understand it completely, but they knew that God would send someone. Now, we with full revelation look back, and so Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are saved the same way. They were declared righteous from what Jesus would do or because of what Jesus did. So David is included in those who have been declared righteous. But Psalm 51, in the same token, to teach us about sin... For some of you in this place this morning, that you are not righteous with God, that you're still dead in sin and trespasses, that the wrath of God still bides upon you, that if you were to die today, you would not go to heaven, you would experience God's righteous anger in hell forever. Check this out Psalm 51 teaches you about the nature of sin. We need to be taught these things. As we get into the text this morning, just listen to a few quotes about sin. Billy Sunday said, one reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. Malcolm Muggeridge, sin is one of the most intellectually resisted facts, and yet the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. Just go to Walmart, right? Billy Graham, self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Thomas Watson, sin has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. In one of his movies, Al Pacino said, vanity is my favorite sin. Bill Maher said, everything that used to be a sin is now called a disease. One philosopher said, sin grows every instant. One does not get out of it. Tim Keller, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. It's like taking an addicted drug. At first it may seem wonderful, but every time it gets harder to not do it again. Glenn Shriver said this, The next time you say something deceitful, hurtful, or proud, you cannot say, I don't know what came over me. Nothing came over you. Such sins come out of you. They come from a wellspring that is very dark, very deep, and very old. You know it. We all feel it. Adam explains it. And in Psalm 51, we are taught first about something that we are all familiar with. Maybe, possibly, the one thing that unites us more than anything. All human beings know the reality of sin. David, in this psalm, uses, in the first five verses that we read, four terms for sin, four different Hebrew words. And when we look at this, it's more than a triangulation. I was trying to create a word, a quadrangulation that's not English. But but David uses four ways to completely surround what sin is. And I want you to see these because they give us the picture of why sin in our hearts and in our minds should be revolting, nauseating, and sickening to us. First, I want you to see that sin is transgression against God. Now, what I mean by transgression, the Hebrew word means rebellion. We find it in three times in Psalm 51. In verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. In verse 3, I know my transgressions. And then he uses it in the noun form down in verse 13 that he's going to teach transgressors their ways. When David's thinking about what he's been caught up in, he first says, I've transgressed. The Hebrew here, peshah, means to rebel specifically or, or ultimately against God and his law. When it's used in a verb form, it means to revolt, to turn, to rebel, to break away from a just authority. In doing so, you breach relationships, You turn allegiance, you rebel against leaders, and ultimately you reject authority. What David is saying, whatever he's done, he has looked at authority and basically said, I turn my allegiance from this authority and I will walk away from it. And that's what sin is. If you think about the first sin in the Bible, what was it? Adam and Eve. Until that moment, they had lived under the authority of God. They had looked to God. They had listened to God. They had submitted themselves. Literally, the first wedding ceremony was under whose authority? It was God. God took the man, and God took the woman, and under his authority, he made the first family. And they had submitted to that, but then the enemy came, and what did he say? You don't need God. Eat this fruit, and you'll be like God. You can be the determiner of what right and wrong are. And that's what transgression is. It's saying, God, I don't need you to tell me what I need to do. God, I don't need you to tell me to tell me what the standard is. I will go into the God business for myself. And David is saying what? (laughs) Sin's transgression. It's rebellion. It's revolt. It's treason against God. The second word he uses here, is that sin is iniquity. The Hebrew word avon means perversity or wickedness. He uses it three times. If you look in the text, in verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. In verse 5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And then down in verse 9, he says, blot out all my iniquities. Avon in the Hebrew is, is the the, the twisting or the perverse nature of sin it means to do this deliberately and it's almost like the revolting nature you ever seen something that like that was just so vile it turns your stomach like i was scrolling through through twitter this week and something popped up and it was it was just like revolting it, it was it was something to do with some witch in this ceremony somewhere, and it was pretty clear that it was like demonic. And inside my, my stomach, I was like, first of all, I was like, why is this popping up on my Twitter timeline, right? But secondly, it was just like, I just wanted to hurl. That's the idea here. I was walking in Walmart yesterday, saw a shirt, full brazen, explicit language on it. A particular word in the English language that Take something that God had created as pure and twist it, and makes it like something running through the mud. It just maybe one adult, and that's the idea of iniquity. It is the nauseating nature of sin. It's twisting something to please ourselves. It's taking something that should be used for good and yet making something vile out of it. Now it's interesting that this word Avon often has a focus on guilt or liability incurred or the punishment that to follow. Meaning, somebody that does this, there's no question that they deserve to be punished. That the deed must be dealt with. I heard a story even yesterday that many years ago in one of these school shootings, the guy had left behind a suicide note. And the suicide note, He said that what he desired, he didn't die in the shooting, but what he desired was he wanted for a police officer to shoot him. And so when they went to trial, guess what they did? Rather than giving him the death penalty, they forced him to have life in prison so that, guess what, there was more justice in allowing him to live than to die. And that's what real justice is. Justice looks at the crime committed and then justice looks at who has committed the crime, and guess what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you've done this, you deserve to be punished. And that's what's coming off in this word. Something is so vile, so twisted, so perverted, it must be punished. There's a third aspect of sin that we need to see in here, and, and it may sound redundant to you, but he uses the word sin. So so sin is sin against God. And the word here, chata, means to fail or to miss the mark. He uses it actually six times, so double the first two. He says it in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. He says it in verse 3, my sin is ever before me. He says it in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. He says it in verse 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. In verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins. And in verse 13 in the noun form, sinners will return to you. Chita has this idea that we basically miss a mark or we miss a way and we fail and thus we are not acceptable or whole before God. So notice one is outright rebellion, one is just twisting and perverting and vileness and this one is I missed the mark, I failed, I didn't meet the standard. But the fourth word he uses, he only uses it once in Psalm 51. It's in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The Hebrew word ra means morally or ethically bad. It's basically the antonym of all that is good. And so I think it's right for us to say sin is the antonym of God's character. It's the antonym of God's attributes. And so... Without Christ, without grace, our nature by default is what? It is the antonym of God. All that God is, we and ourselves, are His are, are the antonym. Now, even though we're broken and fallen, we're still made in his image, praise God, but that image is broken, it's blurred, it's distorted, and we are, in our nature, bad. That's why we do bad things. We do what we do because, the Bible teaches, we are that way. raw is what is disagreeable to God. it is what God says is bad and can I remind you this morning God is the only one who can tell us what is right and wrong. We will justify what is right and wrong in our minds and that's why you have to be in the word of God. This has to this is God's record of how you must live. This is God's standard of what he calls us to. And many of us allow culture to define for us what sin is. Many of us allow the the, the popular society to tell us what is right and wrong. But check this out. God knows what's raw. And God calls what's raw. And so what we have here is, is four pictures or four sides of sin. It's rebellion. It's twisting and a perversion. It's failing to meet God's standard, and it's just evil. I think John Piper has a very exhaustive definition of what sin is. Here it is. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not salt, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. Why then, in Billy Sunday's words, do we treat this like a cream puff rather than a rattlesnake? And how can David, even as someone who composed so many of these psalms, who was so faithful for the Lord, how did he end up in Psalm 51? Go with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we will see what I want us to bring out as the second truth this morning, not just the sickening nature of sin, but second, the collision course with sin the collision course with sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11 should be your cross-reference to Psalm 51 because it tells us how David got to Psalm 51. And when we read the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we start seeing how we can shift from caring about sin and viewing sin as God sees it to basically waking up on a Thursday morning just saying, what just happened? How did I get here? Why am I in this guilt? Why am I in this craziness? Adrian Rogers described it this way. The sin of casualness leads to carelessness, which develops into callousness. We can be casual with sin. And then we become careless with sin. And then guess what? Our hearts become so callous that we don't care about sins, sickening, and destructive nature to us. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's just read the first five verses. In the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and said to David, I am pregnant. This is the historical, contextual background for Psalm 51. And I want you to see that there is a progression here. And I say this to warn some of you this morning. It is our job as pastors, and it is your job as Christians, to be warning each other about the destructive, sickening nature of sin. I hope you know that. Shepherds have to beat off wolves. I know that sheep are dumb, and if my lab can't even understand English, a sheep sure couldn't. But can't you just picture... A shepherd sometimes trying to <laughs> rah bad. <laughs> but think about King Jesus holding us as his sheep and saying, listen, there is such a thing as wolves. There are such things as thorns. There are such things as holes. There are such things as cliffs. And my sheep stay away from them. David in this passage got. Casual, and then he got careless, and then he got callous. My friend Mac Tomlinson and another brother named Al Baker, as they look at this passage, they they call it running red lights. You might ever run a red light, y'all don't run red lights because you entered the intersection when it was still yellow, right? That's how it happens, right? Think about all the red lights, like start down at the car dealerships and go the gambit of 16th Avenue, okay? Till you get to Waffle House. I don't know how many red lights would be there. But what if somebody determined in their mind that they were going to go 80 miles an hour on Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. down 16th Avenue, now what used to be f- five lanes, now four la- will be four lanes, right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And somebody had in their mind that they were going to go 80 miles an hour from, let's just say, Mika Sita, all the way to Waffle House and not stop once. It's not a good idea. So in order in a society to prevent people from doing that, what do we have? Well, we have <coughs> the Mika Sita red light. Y'all, y'all help me out here. Then we have the... Uh, we have like the, uh, we have Joey's red light, right? Joey, you got one right by, by your place, right? And that, the Saki Cafe one, right? And then we got, and then we got the Walmart one, and then we got Walmart Lowe's two, right? And then we got Chick fil A, and then we've got, you dip down in the bottom of the hill at Kim's, right? And then you got the big one, right, at 84, and then, and then you got the one at Waffle House. I, I, I didn't keep count. Maybe that's eight or nine, right? But it's eight. Thanks, Don you have that all memorized, the entire, entire schematics of the city. You put red lights to prevent people from dying. The grace of God in 2 Samuel chapter 11 was to put these red lights in David's life, and guess what he did? At every point, he blew through them. Let me just run through these real quick. Because I want you to see, if you start running red lights in your life, and you start moving from being casual with sin, to being careless with sin, to being callous with sin, guess what? You are on a collision course. What are these red lights? I call the first one neglecting war. David quit fighting. Did you notice in verse 1, it says, in the spring, when the time when kings go out to battle, David sent his army, but what's verse 1 say? He remained in Jerusalem. He didn't lead in the fight. He didn't lead. At this point, the Ammonites had not been overtaken. They weren't completely conquered yet. And let me tell you something. In our lives, when we quit fighting sin, John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And in our life, when we think that we've conquered something, guess what? If we live with that pride, guess what? It's going to turn around and conquer us. David quit fighting. He cut his spiritual Life on cruise. I know he's a king here. I know this is not a spiritual, but what's happening is the the writer of Samuel is tipping you off that David said, I don't need to fight. I can sit this one out. If he would have been on the battlefield, he wouldn't have been committing adultery with Bathsheba. There's a second red light here. I'd call it laziness or idleness. Notice in verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now I'm not going like I'm not going to throw somebody under the bus for taking a nap, okay? If we got honest many of us like need to take like extended naps, right? And all the people said, amen. So I'm not going to beat him up. But I think it's intentional in the text that this was probably an unneeded nap. There was it, the, the way the text is is hinting at is that there were probably other things that David could be doing that would be productive other than taking a nap. There could have been advisors to meet with. So so he's not on the battlefield. It would be one thing to say, okay, he's not on the battlefield because he's like overseeing a construction project or he's trying to work out delegations. He's at the complete opposite. You see it? Not only is he not fighting, he's napping. Too much time on his hands. The day the part of the day where he should be winding down his work, he's waking up from being asleep. You know how we start down the collision course of sin? We basically become apathetic to everything around us. We just go to sleep. I don't care. I'm going to focus on things that don't matter. I'm going to spend my time on things that don't impact eternity should we have hobbies? Absolutely. We need rest. We need relaxation. We need to do that. You need a vacation. I get all that. But this is is when it's not needed. There is work to be done. he's idle. And it says that he's walking on the roof of his house. I think it was Al Baker that suggested maybe he had been walking on that before. And he said, wow, I can see everything from this view. You know, in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, this is where he got in trouble with pride. He was walking around on his roof strutting around and said, look how great I am. And that's when God struck him with insanity from a time. So you almost feel like he's being idle and that's allowing him to be just, man, I'm somebody, man, I'm somebody, man, I'm somebody. Notice while he was on the roof of his house that he saw a woman, from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. I'd call this red light, first glance, first look. Now, if, if you are higher than everyone else, then you will probably see things that no one else could see. And so because naturally in 900 BC, there's no indoor plumbing, people would take baths on their roofs because the great majority exclusively of the population cannot see what's happening on your roof. But the king can because his palace is bigger than everybody else. And it's interesting that Bathsheba and naturally Uriah the Hittite were close to the palace because Uriah was one of David's mighty men. I'll get to more of that in just a second. And so they occupied a pretty prominent place in Jerusalem, but still she was bathing on this roof for privacy. Some commentators had said that She knew people from the king's palace could see her, and she was out there flaunting. There's nothing in the text that says that. It's describing David's sin, not Bathsheba's, okay? But it's interesting that it says, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, semicolon, or break. Now, there's nothing wrong with that point. The text should say, and David turned away and walked somewhere else. But for him... To notice that the woman was very beautiful was he had a glance, and then guess what happened? The glance turned into a look. The glance turned into a stare. The immediate thought that should have been pushed out in Old Testament, taking in captivity to God's law in our day, to be taking captivity to the Lordship of Christ. Guess what happened? It wasn't. David went from A brief thought to dwelling on something. Oh, let me keep looking. Man, she is beautiful. See how these are red lights? Hey, you have an opportunity to go fight. Nope, go through one red light. You got an opportunity to meet with advisors this afternoon. No, I'll take a nap. Another red light. Here. Oh, it's a woman. Oh, I need to turn away. Red light. No, I'm just going to blow through it. So what happened in verse 3? There's another red light, and David sent and inquired about the woman. So now he's investigating. He jumped on her social media profile. We laugh, but we know it's true. Let me find out more about this person. Let me start actually taking steps outside of my head to act on my lust. See what's happening here? So what could have happened at that point was red light. Leave it there. Confess the mental sin. Confess the glance. Red light. No, just blow through it. Let's find out some more. There's a brave, godly person in the palace. In the middle of verse 3, David sends and inquires. So he's so multiple people are knowing about this. And one, I think this one will have a great reward in heaven for being this bold. Notice what this one says. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I don't know who that person is, but man, they got some backbone. Can you imagine that? They start hearing. Hey, David's sending us next door or down the street to find out who this lady is. It's taking a bath on. Uh the scene, like secret service, you know, whispering in their wife, like what the? and then somebody's got, um obvious, I know that address. That that's that's Bathsheba, and her dad is Eliam, and her husband is Uriah the Hittite, who's out fighting the Ammonites right now. This is what we would call a word of caution. Another red light where somebody from the outside steps in and is like, hey, bro, you don't want to go down that road. Lecrae's got a song about this, (laughs) about staring at people in the gym. Don't do it, bro. Don't do it. Don't do it. Can I just say sometimes you and I step into a brother's and sister's life and God uses us to speak a word of caution and to put a red light there so that they'll slam on brakes and not create a wreck. We have an obligation to speak truth in our brothers and sisters' life. And we have an obligation, listen, to receive truth from a brother and sister into our life. But David ignores this word of caution. Uriah the Hittite was named as one of the 33 mighty men of David. He was a bad dude. You start reading about him at the end of 2 Samuel, they were some bad dudes. And it's interesting here that he holds such a high place and yet he's a Gentile, right? He had taken on the God of Israel as his God. He had committed himself to the king of Israel. And guess what? He never thought in a million years that while he was laying his life down for his king, that his king was up on his roof lusting over his wife. So David 6 moves on with a plan. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. So David says, I don't care who's... Daughter she is, I don't care whose wife she is. Let me just speak men to you personally right now, and I'll just add women in here because we all deal with it. Any object of your lust is somebody's daughter or son. And if they're a believer, they're God's daughter or son. And in many times in our society, there's somebody's wife or husband. Teenagers, anybody that you Think you're just gonna hook up with is somebody's daughter or son, and it's somebody's future husband or wife. That's why we're called in 1 Timothy to treat older men as fathers, and older women as mothers, and younger sisters or younger women as sisters, and implied their younger men as brothers. And Paul says, In all purity, there is no place in the church of God for us to be lusting over each other. There's no place. Why are you saying all this? Because it happens everywhere, y'all. It happened in the church at Corinth. It's in the pages of the New Testament. It's in the Thessalonians. I'm not just here to beat up on sexual sin. Trust me, we're going to get to the gospel, but we never appreciate the gospel until we understand how nauseating sin is and how horrible sin is. Or else we'll just sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and could care less about the sin that the Bible tells us. Causes death. So David moves on with the plan. He had time still, right? It takes time to go down there and say, "Hey, the king wants a word with you." And still, can't you feel maybe just a little bit this 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 shepherd and this king who faced Goliath and who faced enemies? His his heart's beating a little harder, and and maybe in a in a sinful way, knowing that he's going to indulge his lust, but maybe in a nervous way to know that the psalm he wrote three weeks ago, he's about to be a hypocrite against there's still time. There's still time. But there's another red light. It says here that she came to him, and he lay with her. It's his last chance. Even when she came on sight at the palace, he can still call it off. Now, he's got to confess and repent of some sin. He's got to explain to all his bodyguards that he's wrong and his messengers that he's wrong. But check this out. He's still got a chance. Did you know the, the Mosaic law in two places, in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, said that the man who commits adultery, he will be put to death, and the woman that he commits adultery will be put to death? And so David is so calloused at this point that he knows he's about to cross over into death penalty land according to his own law that he writes about that he says, my soul looks up to and the word the law of God is reviving and God opened my eyes that I can see wondrous deeds out of your law. He's about to break that. He don't care. We won't read it, but just so you know, this last red light after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he then could come clean because she sends word back in a few weeks that she's pregnant. and At that point, he could just acknowledge it all. This is God saying, look where you are. Look what you have done. David takes it one step deeper, and this is the last red light. It's a cover-up. It's a cover-up, or at least it's an attempt. You you can't cover up what God already knows, right? So you know what He does. Let me just succinctly tell you what He does here. This is this is where this is where you start seeing sin's effect on us. This is what He does. So He finds out she's she's pregnant. So He sends word to the battlefield, and He pulls one of His horses. You ride the Hittite off the battlefield. And brings him home. And says, "Hey, man, listen. Take take a t- take a weekend retreat. Go hang out with your wife, because he knows that if Uriah's back in the city, and everybody's, oh, here's Uriah, mighty warrior. Yeah, he went down there. He stayed at his house for three days, and then you know, Bathsheba starts getting a baby bump. Everybody's like, oh, there. yeah, he came home and been on the battlefield and loved on his wife, and now they're gonna have another kid. But you know what Uriah does? He sleeps at the gate of the palace." And the next day, David says, why didn't you go down there and enjoy spending time with your wife? And he says, my king, everybody else is on the battlefield. Who am I to go down and and be with my wife? Look at the loyalty of this man, how much he loved his king, how much he loved his nation. So David gets him drunk the next day and thinks he'll just go down there and hang out with his wife, even in his Mary state, Uriah doesn't do it. And so what David says is, all right, we're going to take care of it. So David writes to his commander, Joab, and he says, the next time you go into battle, put Uriah on the front lines where the heaviest fighting is, because is i got to take care of this. And guess what happens? Uriah dies. And David has now, check this out, moved from neglecting responsibility to being lazy and idle To looking past the first glance, to investigating a little more, to sending for a woman to come to him so that he can commit adultery with her, to finding out that she's pregnant, to now being guilty of full-blown murder. Man, sin moves quick, doesn't it? One man said it this way, sin takes you where you don't want to go. Sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. Sin costs you more than you want to pay. Sin thrills and then it kills. First it fascinates and then it assassinates. There is no winning the sin game. Can I just tell you this morning, God has graciously put red lights in front of you time and time and time and time and time time again. And can I just tell you from the scriptures, stop. Stop, please, stop. Praying for some of you, not knowing what's in your heart, not knowing what's in my heart, but this prayer for our church. And I don't I don't know crazy stuff about I me. Mean, I'm just simply prophetically this morning telling you, stop. It's not worth it. Stop. God has given some of you 18 red lights, 28 red lights. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. C.S. Lewis said, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the person away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than lies if lying does the trick. Whatever it is, stop. Stop. Go back to Psalm 51. This is where I want to land this morning. Some of you are like, man, this dude's lost his mind. Nope. I don't want to see your life destroyed by sin. And I want you to understand that coming to the light, while it may be painful, guess what? Light heals. Truth heals. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. What effects were in this psalm? I just want to point out a few. So we know why he's crying out like this now. This is some months later. I'll mention it next week, but Nathan the prophet had gone and confronted sin, confronted David's sin. And so David now, out of the fact that he's been busted, not just by, the, by knowledge now, but he's experienced deep conviction of God. He cries out. But he realizes that there's effects, and that's the third truth this morning, the destructive effects of sin. You see, as we look through 2 uh, Samuel 11, you're just like, dude, like, what was going through your mind? Sin causes you to think irrationally. Did you know that? Like, why would you do that? Sin causes us to act wildly. Sin causes us to always be grabbing for what we don't have and not being thankful and appreciative of what we do have. first effect here is that sin is always first and foremost against God. It brings judgment. Look at what he says in verse 4. Now, this is a wild statement when you start thinking about it. Against you, you only have I sinned. That's not true. That's not true, David, because first you, you, you sinned against your family. David had more than one wife, and that's Another discussion for another day in the Old Testament. He he sinned against his family. He he sinned against specifically another family, but more specifically, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Eliam. He sinned against that family. You could say that he sinned against all the guys around him because he did what? He violated their conscience. And what did he do? He caused them to participate in his sin. But ultimately, who did he sin against? He sinned against the nation. But here he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Why does he say that? He, he, is, he is magnifying the, uh, the, the truth that all sin is first and foremost against God. Now, let me speak to this in two ways. Let me speak to it as those of us that commit sin, and then let me encourage some of you. You've been waiting for that word, encourage. Let me just, let me, let me, Speak to it about encouraging those of you who have been sinned against. So, so first, check this out. You need to understand, and you and I need to understand, that every single time we sin, we can look at somebody and we can hate somebody, or we can cuss somebody, or we can lust over somebody, or we can gripe, or we can be greedy, or we can be selfish. And in our minds, all that sin is just horizontal, horizontal, horizontal. David is bringing out the point that before sin hits anybody horizontal, it always hits God first. God is always the first victim of any sin because all sin is ultimately in rebellion against him. Any hate that you exercise towards somebody, check this out, that hate hits God first. Man, we need to be reminded of this, don't we? God cannot remain unaffected by our sin. Relationally, purposefully, willfully, all sin is. So that's why David says this. Against you, you only, have I sinned. But let me say this to encourage some of you. Can I just encourage you? Check this out. What that means is if somebody sins against you, guess what? God has already been affected by that sin, even the millisecond before it touched you. Do you know what that means? No matter how deep and how painful, and how much you struggle, and how hard it is, you ultimately are able to exercise compassion, and pity, and mercy, and forgiveness, and love towards that person, because God finds it in himself to do that too. Now, God's perfect. We're not. And sometimes you just need to offer the forgiveness and obey God's command to forgive before you work it out in your head how you're going to do it. It's encouraging to me to know that every sin that's ever been sinned against me, it was sinned against God first. and Every sin that I commit against other people, it hits God first. But I do want to mention a couple things here. Sin does bring judgment. There's, there's, there's no way of getting out of that. In, in two ways. First for believers. When we sin as believers, because that's the context here with David, when we sin... Sin disrupts our fellowship with God. Yesterday, 17 years. I told you all that last week. 17 years. If if Lauren and I get into an argument or a tiff, like that doesn't make us unmarried, but it makes us have a disruption of fellowship. I've told you this before. My father in law says in 50 years he's never had an argument, he's just had intense moments of fellowship. Doesn't make me unmarried. But what happens is when I try to pray with sin in my life as a believer, guess what? Man, I just feel foggy. I feel like my heart's not in it. And it's just because the Lord's like, hey, let's talk about this. But, Lord, I want to thank you for the day. And I want to thank you for my family. I don't want to ask you to get me that promotion at work. And God's like, hey, let's deal with this. Psalm 32 is your, your chapter on that. David talks about that. He says, man, I, I feel like I was drying up. But there is also in the Scriptures what we call divine discipline that God gives spankings to those that he loves. And the Bible says if you be without chastisement while you're living in sin, you should check your heart, which bothers me that there's so many, quote, Christians living in Mississippi, living in open sin, not caring about their life. Why aren't they disciplined by God? There is a place for the fear of God in our life. Not this this idea that he's going to zap us every five seconds when we mess up. But guess what? I don't want to blow through red lights because ultimately God's going to stop the car. David blew through that eighth red light, and you know what God did? God stopped it. He stopped it. Can I just tell you? There should be a, a place in your theology, in your belief, in your faith, where you say, Praise God, I may not like it, but He will not let me get away with sin. He loves me too much, and He loves His glory too much. But can I just share this this morning with you? Some of you who don't know Christ, you may be religious. You may just want a nice life. The ultimate judgment over sin is eternal punishment in hell. Our doctrinal statement at this church teaches that we believe in the doctrine of eternal punishment. You know why? Because the Bible teaches it and Jesus taught it. We don't believe in annihilationism that after 10,000 years people just kind of cease to be. Well, man, that's wrong and that's wicked and God can't treat people like that. No, it's because you and I have a soft view of sin. If you commit a crime against the U.S. President or the King of England or somebody of notable stature, you'll probably get put away in prison a long time. If you just kind of push somebody in Walmart, you may have to do community service. It may be the same thing you did, but guess what? It's who you committed against that where the crime and the punishment is equated to. You commit crimes against the Holy God, you get punished for all eternity. Guess what? That's justice. That's righteousness. Can I just tell you this morning, out of love and compassion, it may not seem that way, but can I just tell you this, judgment is coming. Man, flee sin. There's there's one more effect here I want you to see that sin always brings death and destruction to others. We didn't read it, but down in verse 14, if you'll glance at it, he cries out and he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. This is the only time in the psalm that he acknowledges that his sin is against somebody else, like directly. And it's not just like, I hurt their feelings or I made them feel bad. He says, there's blood on my hands. Oh, by the way, the baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with, that baby died. And so David is staring at blood from Uriah. He's standing at blood on his hands from his own biological son. And then down in verse 18, he says this build up the walls of Jerusalem. Why is he saying that? That's that's not saying that the walls have been torn down. What he's saying is the spiritual walls have been torn down. If the king can sleep around, guess what? Anybody can. If the guy that writes the Psalms can sleep around, guess what? Anybody can. And he's looking around, he's like, spiritually, man, I got like the, the blood of the standard of the nation on my hands. And you know what? He's feeling that. The lie of the enemy. Is that your small little hidden sin doesn't affect anybody else? Check this out sin always affects everybody else. Don't believe that. It always does. Can I just tell you this? The sin of adultery is prominent in this text, but you could say that all of David's non physical sins, his lust, his pride, his greed, the fact that he thought he could get away with it, may resonate with some of us. Some of you say, well, man, I ain't never committed adultery. Well, Jesus said, if we lust in our, our minds, we've already committed adultery. Jesus says that we may not have murdered anybody. If we hate in our heart, we've already committed that murder. So some of us this morning need to ask ourselves, man, are we, are we being playing with sin? Are we playing with A rattlesnake? Are we playing with something that could kill us? Now, we'll get to it next week, but I want to end this morning noticing David comes before God asking for mercy and cleansing and blotting out because check this out. He knows that God is not just a holy God and a righteous God and a wrathful God and an angry God and a God who righteously judges sin. He knows that in God's character there's mercy and there's grace and there's love and there's forgiveness. This is where I want us to land because this gives us hope as we leave today. We cannot escape guilt and judgment of our sin except through Jesus. As horrible as sin is, as terrible as sin is, as vile as sin is, God is willing to free us and forgive us and to not hold our sins to us any longer, anymore. I think sometimes we get so caught up thinking about ourselves that we say, yeah, of course he should respond that way. What if somebody sinned against you, committed a crime against you, and you sat in the courtroom and you watched the judge just let him off? You wouldn't think that that was a judge of justice. You would think that he had no concept of justice. And Paul deals with this in Romans 3. And Paul's like trying to answer the, the world because when you read the Old Testament, you say, but but God had to kill David. He he's deserving of death. And you read about a guy like Samson, like who, who thinks with testosterone all the time. Like, like you gotta judge that guy. And you look at Abraham, you look at all these like guys that we quote heroes, who have these crazy Just like moments of insanity. Noah, God saved me and God saved everybody, and I'm going to build an altar and then I'm going to go get hammered the next minute. And you read the Old Testament. And Paul's like, how in the world can God let people like that off the hook? And I guarantee you, what goes through Paul's mind I used to kill Christians. How's God going to let me off the hook? And some of us can just go through these red lights and we can go through the filth of our sin and we can say, how can God let me off the hook? John Stott quote, game changer, should make you weep internally or externally. Here it is. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. Look at a cross. God in the flesh. Looking out on a world that has vainly attempted to take God off the throne and put themselves there and because they have done that, because we have done that, we deserve wrath and judgment, and God is righteous to shut up heaven, never say anything to us, and blast us all into eternal hellfire. And yet God becomes man, and God looks out at all these people that have substituted themselves for God, and what God does is God substitutes himself for them. And God goes to a cross where we should be, and God takes on all of the wrath that should come to us and all the anger that should come to us and all the judgment that should come to us and the essence of the gospel is that Christ Jesus substituted himself for us. Us. People who have substituted ourselves for God and ruined our life. Jesus says, I will come and substitute myself for you. And you see, when you have a low view of sin, guess what? The gospel doesn't move your heart. That's why Christ said the one who's been forgiven much loves much because they've seen the vileness of sin and how destructive it is and how it destroys everything, and yet Jesus found me in a pile of slop and brought me out, and oh Jesus, help me to see sin the way you see it, and help me to understand what it cost you to forgive me of my sin so that I won't wink at sin or be careless with it or be casual towards it or be callous towards it, and I won't have to end up in Psalm 51 because I hate sin like you're doing. Check this out. All of us are working through that. That's that's the Christian life. Loving Jesus more, hating sin less. Sometimes we take eight steps backwards in the process. The goodness of the gospel is that Christian, God doesn't give up on you. He is determined to work holiness and sanctification and conformity to the image of Christ in you. It all starts with us viewing God as who he is and viewing sin what it is. And believe it or not, there is joy in that process. Because when the eyes of our heart become illuminated and enlightened to how jacked up sin is, guess what? We will look at the Savior who forgave us in spite of what we are, and we will say, Lord Jesus, you are right. At every moment of temptation, temptation is not just an opportunity to sin. It's an opportunity for me to love you more than sin. It's an opportunity for me to choose you, not sin. It's an opportunity for me to look at you and and behold your glory and treasure you and look at sin and say, no, you never died for me. You didn't do anything for me. You're killing me. This is the one who was killed for me, and I will devote myself to him all of my days. Our salvation hinges in partly of our view of sin. Our sanctification as a Christian hinges partly on our view of sin. And check this out. Seeing what the Bible says about sin and believing it, for some of us, will move us towards knowing Jesus truly as our Lord and Savior. And for some of us who are in Christ, knowing what sin is will cause us to walk in holiness. It's not fun to talk about, but it's needed. has to be times in our life that we take the Scripture and we read the parts that don't really feel good going down, but they're medicine for us because they heal us and they make us like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need you this morning. We need you to help us see sin for what it is. God, more than that, see you for who you are, your holiness and your glory, your greatness, how worthy you are. Not that we would see sin and love you more, God, but we would see you and love sin less. Lord, as an old saint prayed, I pray in our hearts, God, don't let anything that should live in us die. And Lord, don't let anything that should die in us continue to live this morning. Point out our sin, God. Show us where we've just blown through red lights. God, let us feel about sin the way you feel about it. That you're you're not some, some grumpy Father, trying to keep us from fun. You're a loving, compassionate Father who's trying to keep us from wrecking our life. Lord, because you're holy, you're worthy that we pursue holiness. And God, I pray for those this morning, even as we've, we've walked through these, these heavy thoughts on sin, the one that knows that they're sinful, that they will behold the Savior of the world becoming sin for them. They wouldn't stay in the pig pen. They would get up and come to the Father who's willing to forgive and reconcile and save and redeem. Because that's who you are, God. Lord, work your word in our hearts. Church, as we sit before the Lord in an attitude of prayer, what is the Holy Spirit saying through the Word of God to your heart? As Justin prayed earlier, perhaps this morning you may be religious or moral or nice, but you have never been reconciled to God. And Every night that you lay down, put your head on your pillow, your sins haunt you and your guilt haunts you, and you know that you are not right with God. Can I just tell you this morning, the gospel is that Jesus died in your place for your sin. He was buried on the third day he rose again. And everyone who calls on his name shall be saved. And perhaps this morning, repent of your sin, believe the gospel. In just a few moments, I'll be at the back. Justin will be at the back. Paul's here, Ryan's here. All of us. Daniel, will stay after the service and talk with you and share with you the goodness of the gospel. If you don't know him this morning, he died to set you free from your sin. But Christian, part of the Crosspoint family this morning, be killing sin. Don't let it be killing you. Perhaps this morning there's known sin in your life. The Holy Spirit's saying, hey, let's talk about that. Stop by God's grace, stop. Don't wreck. Don't crash. Stop. If you need us to talk with you, pray with you, counsel with you, just come cry. Just love to be able to see you forgiven, restored before the Lord. Perhaps there's, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, you need to confess sin horizontally to somebody. You got freedom to do that this morning, even as we sing, even after the service. But to choose the truth of Jesus over the lies of sin. So let's stand, I'm going to pray over you, and then Daniel and the team are going to lead us, so just, if you would, stand. Lord, through your word and through the truth that we sing with our hearts, we pray that the truth of Romans, that sin would have no dominion over us. And that Christ would be glorified in our bodies. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the whole counsel of the word of God, Lord. Thank you that you died to set us free from our sins. We worship you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.